Okay. All right. Well, welcome, community, to another episode of Beyond Four Walls. As usual, I have our co-host, Anthony. How are you good, doing good, today? Good, brother. How's everything? I am doing great. Excited with our guest, as usual. Yes, um, today we have uh, Kerwin. Uh I'll do a quick for, uh, bio for you so everyone kind of knows uh, who you are and uh, why we are excited. And then you can kind of tell us a little bit more in detail um, for, uh, for, from yourself. So uh, Kerwin is an assistant uh, professor of preaching and church ministries at Moody Bible Institute, also a co-editor and contrib- contributing author to the One Volume sem- Seminar, a complete minis- uh, ministry educational resource, also has a PhD in preaching. Um, Kerwin, thank you for saying yes. We are excited to have you, and I'm sure our listeners are excited to have you as well. It's an honor to be here with y'all. Uh, just a quick clarity before my, my professors hear this and get mad at me. I'm a PhD candidate, so in faith, oh, I will be a okay. PhD in preaching, but right. right now I'm researching and, and writing, so hopefully I'm, in a year from I'm now. Preach- I'm, get- I'm getting ahead of myself in Speaking faith. I'm getting, I'm getting Amen. Of my- faith. <laughs> That's right. My students call me doctor and I say, yes, yes, to, to the <laughs> Lord's ears, go. please. <laughs> well, we're excited. How, how's everything um, uh, been going for you? How's like the, how is the process of getting your PhD? Is it overwhelming? Yeah, it, it's a hard thing. It's a, it's a big commitment. Um, we're glad to be out of the class stage. It's a really wonderful experience. I love my experience at Baylor University's Truett Seminary. Uh, but my wife and my three kids are very excited that the end is near so that I can be a little bit more present at home. It's been a real sacrifice for uh, for us as a family, not only financially, but just mentally and emotionally in terms of capacity. But it's been good. And you're writing your dissertation on what? Can you, it cut can you out me? all the way even with, sorry, it cut out all the way no, with audio. No worries. Um, you're writing your dissertation in what in particular when it comes to preaching? Yeah, so the, it's a PhD in preaching, and specifically, I'm interested in the historical trauma of dictatorship uh, among Dominican people. So what does it mean to preach the gospel in a context where we've been shaped by the dictatorship of uh, Rafael Trujillo? And so how can we, as gospel preachers, preach the gospel and address all those uh, historical things that we've internalized as a people, even generationally? So that's that's my that's my focus. Interesting. That's that's a interesting aspect because you yourself never experiences that correct that's right that's right so, so to try to like find that perspective through historical context i'm sure that's a difficult yeah it's really fascinating because uh even though he's you know he was assassinated in 1961 there's a sense in which his legend still looms large over us as a people in terms of what we think about masculinity, uh, what we allow in terms of masculinity and sexuality, uh, what we think about in terms of who we are as a people. Uh, uh, as, a, as, as a Christian preacher, I think it's important for us to tell a different story. And, the story, and how, does, how then does the story of Jesus remake us as a people, even though we have this legacy that's a part of who we are? Okay, and uh, Anthony has is he does he loom because you're Dominican? Yeah. I mean, uh, do you have the obviously yeah, you're just, Dominican? Do you have that? I was going to say it's interesting because you know I wasn't aware of, of your background, so it's interesting and it, you know it touches me because obviously my parents are from the Dominican Republic and you know I've heard the stories, I've seen the movies, so it's it's something near and dear to my heart. So that's awesome. That's cool. That's cool. I didn't yeah. know you were Dominican. De lo mio. 
<laughs> so um so let's let's talk a little bit more about that i would love to, i mean it's interesting you start off with that how do you what does it really mean to because we talked about this with ricky i mean Emmanuel, uh, when we had him on, on it how does such a far past do you really think it embeds in today's present christian how do you how do you see that actually being um issues being drawn or even like how does that come about yeah, well, when you think about, um, uh, you know, Trujillo isn't all that it is to be Dominican, and yet he still looms large in our psyche about what it means to be male, what it means to be uh, a person who cares about one's nation and patriotic and those kinds of things. And so even as an immigrant who was born in New York City to Dominican parents, my mother was, was three years old when he was assassinated, and yet... Uh, his story and legacy still shapes how we talk about one another. So, for example, I was at the barbershop a few weeks ago, and it was fascinating. None of them knew that this was my dissertation interest, but there was an older Dominican guy who was talking about uh, masculinity, and he says, well, you know, he may have been a bad man, but he was a bad man. And what he was referring to was, was, was Trujillo as a kind of model for masculinity and sexuality and strength. And essentially what he was arguing was uh, he had a way with women and he he was a strong man. And even when he was assassinated, he went out uh, with his guns out and that that's somehow a sign of strength and uh, and something that's admirable despite his violence and oppression of people. And so when you think about masculinity and when you think about uh, the kinds of things that young men are raised into in terms of what it means to be a man, uh, those things still are consistent from generation to generation. And in some ways, he has embodied that ideal Dominican man in the consciousness of a lot of people. And so in light of that, not, not to mention other things in terms of racialization and our understanding of our own blackness mm-hmm. or anti-blackness, um, he has shaped that as well. Uh, and so conversations around nationalism today uh, can't help but be echoes of what he was doing during that time to, to, to create a nation, to create a people. And so in light of that, it's fascinating to think about that, uh, you know, under Trujillo, Uh, There was no Protestant church. There was a small Protestant church that was an African church that was allowed some uh, some existence. But generally speaking, it was a Roman Catholic country. And after he's assassinated, then Protestant missionaries are able to come into the country. And so what does it mean to remake a people after such violence, after such a historic and generational um, uh, existence. What does it mean for us to think about Jesus and to think about how the gospel remakes us as a people? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because, um, it brings about like why I'm super excited for you is the concept of how we bring the message, the gospel to different people. Mm-hmm. And as my journey personally, and as I grew up, it's, it's interesting how embedded you would consider culture to how you bring the message where i mean i would just say it's just be as consistent across the board where like doesn't matter if they're oppressed or not the message is going to be the same it's about a, a god a loving god that showed mercy on his people and brought his people to have identity through him to have freedom and all the etc all the other adjectives you could say freedom love compassion all, and you know. so what do you mean by so obviously your dissertation is about how do you bring the gospel to these people, right? 
Like, how does that mean? What? But what does that really mean? Does it mean that you're changing the way you speak? Are you changing the message you bring? And does that mean you're watering down the message possibly? So what does that really mean to bring a message to a certain type of people? And should we be doing yeah. that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, one of my key values and understanding about gospel preaching and gospel ministry is that all of us have to do a form of contextualization. And so when we think at its very core, what is the gospel? The gospel is good news. It's proclamation that uh, that God is redeeming this world and his people uh, through the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, so that by faith in Jesus, uh, we can be one with God and we can have and experience redemption in this life and then in the anticipation of his return. And so in light of that good news, when we think about that gospel message, we have to ask ourselves, how do I communicate that in such a way that would make sense to a people based on their particular life circumstances? When we look at the ministry of Paul, for example, in the gospel of, or in the book of Acts, the sequel to the gospel of Luke, we see that Paul does this contextualization often so that he's preaching the same good news, but is emphasizing different things. So what does it sound like? Uh, for Paul to preach the gospel in a context of Judaism? What does it then sound like for Paul to preach the same good news in a context of Gentiles who are pagans or to the mm -hmm. Romans even or anyone else? So all of a sudden you have these ways of expressing these good news and emphasizing different aspects that are uh, speaking to what that culture believes is true and sometimes we can affirm those things as true because it's really God's truth. And then we can also point to those pressure points where the gospel undoes something, the value system, uh, the worldview, the story that these people are telling themselves. And so I think as missionaries have discovered, it's important for us, yes, to preach the same gospel that unites all of us, but that same gospel then is conveyed in different aspects because the gospel of Jesus Christ is very simple. You know, I summarize it in a couple of sentences, but it's also really complex. And so all of a sudden we might think, well, what does the gospel mean in a context where some people uh, are rich and are comfortable? How do you preach the gospel to them in a way that makes sense and challenges them and, and unveils their sin and their dependency on God? But then how do you preach the gospel to a people who are poor, who have nothing? And so you, the way that you emphasize certain aspects of that gospel may change in a way that would be fitting or helpful. And so it's important for every preacher to understand the place where they're preaching, to understand those stories and those values that then are taken up by the gospel and either affirmed or challenged so that they might be able to believe faithfully in the one who came, who lived, who died and rose from the dead. And, and to okay. piggyback off of that, we see that in the four gospels. It's not, you know, they didn't change exactly. the message, but Matthew focused more on, on, on the Judaism and relating it to that and making that connection. That's why he's, it starts off with the genealogy because that's big for, for the Jewish community, the genealogy looking back in their bloodline. So he starts off by that to introduce Jesus to to that group of people and, and Mark and Luke and John. And they have a different audience, but it's still the same message of Jesus Christ. So push back on that. What do you, where's the fine line between gimmicky and contextualizing to our people. So I give you an example. One of the things that I are for me, I think is a, a risk is like 
when we try to appeal to the youth, we're like, that's lit. We try to use like, we try to like <laughs> bring words or bring, bring what they do now. Like try to, yeah. you know, do take all these things to try to, you know, bring the gospel. At what point does it become a gimmick and you're just, you're just being gimmicky with your message and not really mm -hmm. showing the true like weight of the gospel. Like it's holy. You have to be like, you have to convert and, or vice versa and any, any gimmick that you show. Where is the line of gimmicky and contextualizing to the people you're speaking to? Yeah, that's a good question too. I think, uh, I think it, it comes down to authenticity with the preacher having first experienced the gospel for themselves. And so that even if I want to use the language of the people, young people especially can smell it when it's not real. You know, when you're just using terms just to try to act cool, it won't be cool. And so there's a sense in which every preacher, I like to use the metaphor uh, that other homileticians have used, other preachers have used, uh, which is that when we as preachers uh, preach the gospel, we're doing so as witnesses. In other words, we've been entrusted with a message that we have to guard and be honest to and be truthful with. We have to tell the truth, but we also have to bear witness to the ways in which we were first transformed. So one of the passages that that most shaped this for me is when Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church and he says, I bring to you what I first received. Uh, in other words, this impacted me first. And if I'm not speaking from my lived experience of my changed life, uh, it doesn't really mean anything. Uh, and then he says that he lived, that he died. He appeared to many, uh, or that he died, that he rose from the from the grave on the third day for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to many. Uh, and then he goes on about his own identity as an apostle. So he appeared least least of all to or to me, who's least of all of all of these individuals. And so, in light of that, I take that to, for Paul to say, "Look, uh, this ministry of preaching the gospel, I'm sharing it with you because I first received it." And every preacher has to preach it with that sense of, it came to me first. And so there's an authenticity that comes from that life transformation. Uh, one of my favorite homileticians, uh, Cecilio Arrastia, who's a Cuban homiletician, he says, if the preacher, uh, if the gospel doesn't cause vibrations in the preacher, then the preacher can't really preach. Mm -hmm. In other words, you have to have experienced that life transformation if you expect for that life transformation to happen in other people. And so the authenticity is going to come from that real relationship so that uh, the corniness comes off when you're trying to fake it, when you're using language that doesn't make sense. And so what I would encourage preachers who are trying to reach a community that they don't understand uh, is to say, what do we have in common first? And then how can I focus not on those um not on those surface level differences, but the core heart questions that come out of that. So rather than trying to use the language or technology of young people, get at their hearts. What are they concerned about? What are they burdened with? What are their questions? That's real contextualization rather than let me make all these TikTok things where I could do all the dances and look really old. Mm. That's just lame. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, where do you put... Okay, so... You know, you're talking about contextualizing and really understanding the people we're preaching to and understanding ourselves and what messages are brought to us. Now, where do you put is in, I become a missionary, I go somewhere, or I, I have the opportunity to speak at a speaking engagement, wherever it may be. Where is that burden of, okay, 
no matter how much I could contextualize, it's not on how I bring the message, but it's on the Holy Spirit to open their eyes. Because mm-hmm. one, I mean, you see this, I mean, you also see this in how much, and one, how much is it for them to open their eyes? And also how much is it the Lord is actually giving you the words to say? So we see this yeah. um, where Jesus says, you know, to the, to the apostles where, don't worry, the Spirit is going to give you the words and what to say when you're, when you're in front of people. So does it, is it really that important to understand the culture if you have the Spirit guiding you to say what you're going to say? Like how much, is, yeah. how much is the burden of contextualization actually necessary? It, it, it goes even big, wider than that because this is the key question when we think about preaching as a whole. How much of preaching is up to me as an art or a gift or a craft? And how much is up to the Lord and the Holy Spirit and working out in the lives of people? And I think it's a both end. Uh, it's two sides to the coin. On the one hand, as a preacher, I have to be responsible to the gospel, the word of God, uh, and to the place that he has called me to. So I have to do hard work. I have to really think carefully about the words that I'm going to say so that I might be as clear as possible and not create a stumbling block to those that I'm ministering to. And at the same time, I have to anticipate that God has inviting me, invited me into this work where he is the primary actor, uh, where it's the Holy Spirit, the triune God who is doing something in the life of the speaker so that there is this, on the one hand, I have to work as hard as possible to understand the people, to understand the gospel and communicate it clearly. And on the other hand, I have to have faith and pray that the Holy Spirit would take my mere words, because that's all it is, and do something with it. And so even in the act of preaching, it's an act of faith where I say, Lord, at the end of the day, these are human words. And I'm trying to communicate something so precious, something so majestic and incredible that I fail to be able to do so. And so you have to do the work of breathing life into dead people if I'm preaching to unbelievers or if I'm preaching to people who have been hardened and calloused you have to be the one to soften their hearts because I can't do that work. And so it's that both and. Yeah. Um, um, with that, so one of the things I was interested in is, I mean, especially you see this with Spanish preachers or, or just Spanish ministry in general, the, the dependency so strongly on the Holy Spirit guiding their, you know, their plans, guiding their preachings, guiding their teachings. Where does academia truly fit? So the the study of the Bible, like really building that academic knowledge, where does that really fit in the spiritual realm? Well, because, I mean, as I grew up, I grew up more where people didn't really depend on academia. They depended more on spiritual guidance, like the Lord coming upon them to tell them what to do. So where is that fine line of not the not depending too much on your knowledge or just in general where does academia where would you put academia in that in the life of a christian or a leader you know it's funny because i i i am training sometimes i train people who are on the ground doing ministry work um but most of the time i'm training students to become preachers so they're outside of their context of doing ministry and they're just preparing themselves to do that ministry work and so often their problem is the opposite problem where their problem is that they're too too cognitive uh, and not relying upon the Spirit to help them to illumine the things that they're reading, to bring understanding to what they're doing, and then to trust the Lord to do a ministry work in the people. 
But then, of course, the opposite is true for someone who who might be in the ministry, who might um, who might be inclined toward uh, spiritualizing things or just relying on the spirit. And we find that the Lord has made us to be uh, rational beings as well as spiritual beings. And so I think about someone like Apollos uh, in the book of Acts, who is an incredible, incredible communicator, uh, has been filled by the spirit and yet is not studied enough. And so when Priscilla and Aquila hear him preach, they say, "Okay, we got to sit down with you and disciple you in terms of understanding what is going on in these scriptures. And so what do they do? They disciple him and train him up in the study of the scriptures and in the study of the gospel so that he might be a more fitting and faithful minister. And so to the person who is saying, I don't need studies, I don't need books, I don't need history, uh, I, it's just me in the spirit, uh, I'd say be careful now uh, because you might be mistaking something as the spirit when it's really your own yeah. wisdom, uh, which is really foolishness. And also we have to remember when this was going on there was no bible all they had was the torah at most and maybe a couple other books but now is where we have the canon of scripture where we can actually go back and read more than than they had at that time so i would say it's more of a responsibility right. for us to to use that tool right and and i would say too that even in those times uh especially after the exile. So thinking about the, the, the people of God as Old Testament people, they've been removed from the land. They now come back from the land. After the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, the people become a people of the book, mm -hmm. a people of the scrolls. Uh, and so even if there isn't a Bible, like what we would call a Bible, uh, th there are still um, synagogues and places where people are hearing uh, the word of God read and explained and taught. And so when people who are outside of the Jewish uh, community are coming to faith, there needs to be for the church a place where individuals are being trained up in the scriptures. Uh, because, you know, Peter and the apostles, they would have been trained up in mm -hmm. the scriptures as Jewish people. But now you have Gentile believers who don't have that educational system. And so and so Priscilla and Aquila have to redo that. And the church then functions in a very synagogue style. And so I think, unfortunately, today there are some people who ignore the fact that our Christian faith is built upon the Jewish foundation. Yeah. And that Jewish foundation, if we read the Psalms, if we read uh, the wisdom literature, uh, if we read the Torah, is focused on learning these scriptures, uh, meditating on these scriptures, internalizing them, and in that system, it's a dialogical process of talking about these things. What does this mean? Searching out what others have said and what others uh, have said before us. And it really is a studied faith. Uh, and that's true of the Christian faith as much as it was true for the Jewish people who are, who are trying to follow God. Yeah. And going on to that idea, then, is how much is what's the duty of a like how far is studying the how much knowledge should they get because obviously you dirty you're dedicating your life to a certain craft of building and having a, a ample knowledge of the bible some people aren't called to that some people are called to just be plumbers you know be be other things mm -hmm. when it comes to a person that you know they weren't specifically called to do this deep dive of the bible that others are how much 
truly study of quote unquote their, hmm. the actual Bible, theology, history, hermeneutics, all these other things, how much should they know? Or is there like a fine line that you would say, okay, you should know at least this, or you should study this much? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you know, th there there are spectrums and there are aspects of um, where will I study, how will I study, and what's what's accessible to me. So, for example, uh, should every Christian go to a Bible college? Uh, probably not, uh, for a number of reasons. It may not be accessible. It may not be their calling. Uh, and so there's a couple of distinctions that I would make. First of all, are you called to gospel ministry? If you're called to gospel ministry, then there should be some kind of formal training. Now, I've, I've done trainings for people around the world, and there's places where formal college or Bible school education may not be accessible. And so that's where uh, you want to do as best as you can. Uh, surround yourself with other ministers who are experienced, who maybe had access to that formal training, and create non-formal uh, training centers. Uh, and the church has done that for, 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 for a long time. Um, but if you have access to it, then uh, of course, and your call to ministry, of course, you should be going into that kind of formal aspect. For others who have an interest in gospel ministry or identify or are called as ministers, but maybe not in a formal sense. In other words, they're not going to go and become a pastor or a teacher, uh, and their primary role is elsewhere, but they still want to understand the scriptures and have access to it, uh, then it can be an incredible resource, not to just not to get a degree necessarily or a credential, but to be around other people who are formally studying the scriptures, it can be really beneficial. At the core, though, for your average Christian, what I would encourage that person to say is the Christian faith was never intended to be lived alone or to be understood alone. And so that means that you should be studying the scriptures personally, of course, but then also studying the scriptures with other people as well. And so at the base level, every Christian should be reading the scriptures for themselves, both devotionally and to seek to understand the, the nature of our faith. But in doing so, you should be doing it with other people. Now, what does that mean? That means that you do it within your local church. But then also, given where you might be, you might have access to do that learning with other people, uh, even if those other people are people who have written books, people who have come before us, uh, people who are in other places around the world. So, for example, uh, I know a friend of mine who, who does this personally. He will... Um, uh, he will find a sermon that has been preached on the passage that he's studying. And so he's reading the passage, he's talking about it in community, but he's also reading a historic sermon from Augustine or from other, other Christians who have written on these things. And in other words, or in some ways, they're dialoguing with those who have come before us as historic figures, members of the Christian church. And I think any person as long as they have access to a library or to online resources, can do something like that as part of that desire to be a well-learned person because we all are called to understand and study the scriptures in a way that is faithful and considerate of those who have come before us. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I've, I've, over these like last couple of weeks, I've been, since I moved, I've been kind of working on what routine I'm going to have here in North Carolina. And 
you know, he's thinking about that and kind of praying and kind of have asking God to like really make that a reality. Um, you come to realize how much we truly don't have our time centered around the Lord. Where as in, if we really just focus on the Lord, we would ha we would say no to a lot of things to say yes to a lot of other things that would give us time to really study, be in community and all these things. Like the five day work day isn't designed for a Christian. The five day work day was designed for to, to increase efficiency, increase a lot of other things for our company. Where we we have as americans designed our christian life surrounding the american culture instead of having a christian life having our culture be surrounded by a christian biblical lifestyle so i, I think it is important um to understand that my only concern is where is on the other side you know um, ecclesiastes speaks about you could lose yourself studying all day you could lose yourself mm -hmm. and that's one of the it, it ends with that it ends with that uh kind of like warning don't 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 lose yourself in the books because you'll never find the answers mm -hmm. where is that or i'm sure you've seen it where people overstudy how do you avoid that where you're trying to find answers where god is never going to illuminate that answer in front of you yeah that's a good that's a good that's a good point uh two things that came to mind as you were sharing i think you're right that um that to say this um, we have to recognize that our society is shaped in such a way that it makes it difficult. That's not an excuse necessarily. Uh, you know, there are many times where I, I wish that I had dedicated myself to praying and reading the scriptures and reading what others say about the scriptures. And I say to myself, I'm so busy. I got three little young kids under the age of five and it's impossible. But then I found time to binge <laughs> a couple hours of Netflix or something like that. And so, you know, you're right. We, we prioritize our life around the values uh, that are around us. Uh, but at the same time, you might have the opposite effect where, where someone says, uh, I, I'm just going to study the, the, in the books and keep my, head, my nose to, to the book. Uh, and there's something that can be flawed in that sense, too. I remember uh, talking with a pastor for many years, and he talked about this. He was, he was a seasoned pastor, and he talked about this as a real regret in his life and ministry, that he so enjoyed the books that he failed to love the people around him. And I think that's something that we have to remember and cultivate, uh, that a love of God also is communicated in a love of neighbor. And so if I am so fixated on understanding God intellectually, but somehow am unable to spend time around others around me that the Lord places around me to be in their life, to communicate the message, to live out the message around them, then I've missed it in terms of understanding the Christian faith. It's not enough just to be studied, but it also has to be a faith lived out. And so there are limits. Uh, there are limits in terms of uh, am I going to dedicate all of my life and, 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 and instead produce a kind of hermit behavior where I go off to the mountains and I take a bunch of books and scrolls with me and that's the Christian life? Uh, no, it's not. In fact, the better Christian life is to uh, have a, a proper balance of studying the scriptures and then living out the scriptures. Uh, and I think a lot of people historically have discovered that, uh, that perhaps some of us have created an idol out of that kind of life that is dedicated solely to study and not to living life around people who need to see and hear the gospel through a life well lived and that's what that's what distinguishes the christian faith from 
all the other major ones because you know sometimes it could be a blessing but sometimes it's a curse how we're just saying these other religions it's part of the culture buddhism hinduism muslim Judaism. it's part of the culture like you're born in that country that's your religion and period so you know it's not there's no there's no other option that's that's what you're raised in that's what you are as part of the culture it's the religion and the culture is pretty much the same that's the difference with christianity that in a sense is bad because you know we're not raised in that fashion and we don't have that base but also that's what allowed christianity to expand and cover the whole globe because it's not part of the culture so anybody can be part of it it's not if you're not born in it you can't you know so it's about like you said it's a balance it, we can't both both extremes are are bad right we have to find this middle ground where we're not all study and we forget about community but we can be all community and disregard study it has to be a balance where we can use both to to expand the kingdom mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah for sure um one thing i'm interested in is we when i first kind of met you you actually picked me up but we we're driving somewhere and i asked you this and you kind of were very adamant about this with this question i said what's the difference between preaching and teaching mm. and you were very like adamant about that i'll let you kind of answer that i mean i remember i i mean over the time i've always thought of that um where you said there's not really a fine line between them that they're they're one of the, one of the, one in the same but I kind of want you to elaborate on that that answer or that that question. Yeah, just this past week, a student asked me this question as well. And the way that I think about it is this, is that uh, all preaching will be a form of teaching, not all teaching is a form of preaching. Uh, so there is a key distinction between them. Um, and for some people in their minds, they're thinking, well, teaching is just cognitive information, filling brains, and preaching is transformation of the heart. That's not true, right? The best teachers are ones who seek to uh, influence people so that they might live differently as good citizens or, or whatever other values there might be. But there's something that distinguishes preaching as a unique act. Uh, and I think for the Christian preacher, uh, that uniqueness is in the proclamation. Uh, the very word preaching means to proclaim, to announce. And so uh, it comes from the Greek word caruso. Uh, and basically, it's we are announcing something. And what are we announcing? We're announcing the gospel. Uh, and so when we do so, uh, Paul says we proclaim him so that you might become mature in Christ. So that's the goal, the objective of all preaching. Now, some people might say, oh, well, that's my goal, too, when I'm teaching. Sure. But there's something unique about the act of preaching. That is that we believe that God somehow mysteriously has called this act so that within the context of the Christian community uh, and even outside of the walls of the Christian community, the preacher announces, proclaims that Jesus lived, died, and resurrected on the third day. And in doing so, we anticipate that there might be a response to that gospel message. Uh, Now, when we're preaching, that means that we also instruct so we provide instruction uh we provide challenge uh we provide um uh i'm I'm thinking of of second timothy uh where where paul describes for timothy um the nature of the word and and preaching itself uh sometimes i confuse first timothy and second timothy so let me let me find it real quick uh you're fine otherwise while you're doing that anthony any thoughts on that question yeah i mean 
like you said, preaching has to, in my opinion, has to do more with specifically the gospel, trying to reach and, and you know, while teaching, although it can have that aspect, also has to do with expanding your knowledge, deepening your, your understanding of the word and of God. So I would agree with yeah. Willie. Uh, um, I think uh, why why you're pulling up Carwin, oh, my thoughts on it is, um, one, it's um interesting that uh, I mean, certain cultures are very dependent on one or the other, where you have like Spanish culture, like they're or at least where the churches I grew up in, they're very dependent more on the preaching aspect of things, where preaching was the apex receiving of what they should listen to where other churches you see that teaching is a driving force of that church and building that teaching aspect. Where do you do, is there one that you would say is like necessary and others optional or where do you see that when it comes to church balance, where should we drive like preaching is where you, where you need to be and teaching is an, an, an an, addition to preaching or is preaching in addition to teaching or is it not like that? Yeah. Uh, as a Protestant Christian, I think that the Protestant Church has has for a long time, probably since the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, has emphasized preaching as essential to the Christian Church. Um, instruction then serves uh, the the preaching of God's ministry, so that they're they're working hand in hand. Uh, but I think about when we think about preaching itself, one of the advantages to thinking about preaching as the first task rather than the second task of, of teaching is that preaching involves those things that teaching involves. Um, so that we're trying to, as preachers, we're trying to help individuals understand themselves cognitively, so what they believe, uh, what they know, but then also affectively, so what do they, what are they moved by, what do they value, but then also in terms of actions, their hands, what do they do, what do they say, how do they speak. Um, now, of course, teaching will try to do some of those same things, too. But preaching ultimately is following after uh, in preaching the gospel, the word of God uh, is trying to follow then those things that the scriptures do. So the passage I was thinking of is where Paul instructs uh, Timothy and is calling him to stay committed to the gospel. And he says, remember the things which you have learned. Uh, but he says all scripture is, is inspired by God, beneficial for teaching, for rebu for rebuke for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. Uh, later on, he says, I solemnly exhort you in the presence of God and of Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead. Preach the word in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So preaching includes instruction. To your point, there are some churches, and I don't know if I would lay the blame at all Hispanic churches, but there are some yeah. churches which would um, forget that aspect that the word that the word of God doesn't just rebuke or correct or exhort, but it also instructs in the faith. And then there are also other churches that would only emphasize that instruction of the faith, uh, so that you know some people they might say. You know, I, I grew up in this church and, you know, everybody is taking notes during the sermon and writing out information. Uh, and I go to another church and it's like I'm being moved. I'm being stirred uh, emotionally. And that was different. And some some people say, uh, I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, well, both are preaching. Uh, but one might be emphasizing one aspect of the word, which is to move you. And another would be uh, another one to teach. 
But preaching has to do all of those things. Um, uh, Augustine, in his book on Christian doctrine, which is the first book by a Christian on preaching, on, 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 on speech, on Christian speech, he essentially says that there, there are multiple tasks of preaching. Uh, one is to instruct, one is to delight, to, to interest you, but then the most important is to move. Uh, so that yes, we teach, we instruct, but we also move people toward action. And I would say that that's the biggest thing, the primary thing that distinguishes preaching and, and teaching. Yeah, um, uh, Anthony has something Yeah, to say. and also, we're all called to preach, right? Preach the gospel. But not because we have to remember a teacher is part of the fivefold ministry. And neither of those are specifically a preacher because we're all called to preach. But the teaching, I would say, is more nuanced, more specific to people who God has given their that gift to be a teacher and an effective one. But we're all called to preach, but not everybody's called to teach because they might not have that spiritual gift or, or anointing over there. Yeah, and, now, and for me in my faith tradition, uh, my 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 reading of the of you know the the list in Ephesians four would be uh, um, that teaching and that we are called to preach that uh, the the role of preaching is specifically given to certain gospel ministers, um, and it is a gift from God. And so yes, everyone is called to share the gospel through their life um, uh, and through their words. Uh, as evangelists, but there is a sense in which those ministers, there are ministers who are uniquely set apart for the preaching and teaching of God's mm-hmm. word. And so to me, that there, there's, there's a, uh, there is a sense in which some are called uniquely to preach uh, in a more formal setting and others are called to preach with their whole lives, right? I mean, when he says preach the word, he's talking to Timothy who had been specifically mm-hmm. called to a particular ministry. I got to apologize too. I got I got a lot of babies it's here. I got good. three kids, and so you probably hear some crying in the background. It's no, it's 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 part of life. No no worries. Uh, one question though, do you as I mean we grew up every Sunday we hear it preaching. Now, do you think that it's actually necessary? How often is when we come together as a community? Should it be a, should be preaching be the driving force of that service, or is that something that we just grew up in culture? And that's not really truly how the rep- is represented. Like, from my understanding, preaching was really of a declaration of the good news. But if everyone's there, you're coming together for teaching. You're coming together as Jesus went to the synagogues to teach, not to always preach, because those people were already part of the of a in quote unquote the community. So where where do you draw that line of like, do we really need to preach every Sunday, or is that something we're we're just confusing out of out of tradition? Yeah, and just to clarify, uh, in the way that you're describing the teaching, right, when Jesus taught, he was preaching, in my mind. That's where, again, okay. uh, all preaching is including teaching, not all teaching is, is preaching. Uh, and so when Jesus is instructing, proclaiming, you know, he, he, is, he, is doing, uh, he is doing something because the Christian preacher, again, is based out of the Jewish synagogue tradition, uh, which is teaching and also saying something from the word. You might even say, in some sense, a prophetic word uh, to to reveal what God has done and will do through the testimony of the experience of the people of God. I don't mean prophetic as in like this is you know something like foretelling, uh, telling the future. I mean looking backwards and looking toward the end of the of the biblical story. Uh, in that in that sense. Um, 
I think for for the Christian church, again, being built off of the tradition of the synagogue, the sermon is essential for the people of God's development uh, and understanding of who we are as a community. Um, after Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, something happened. Uh, remember the story of the people of God. They were living as the people of God. They had a king. They lived in the land. They lived as God's blessed people. His presence were there. They had all of the rituals. Uh, but they did not heed the word of God. Mm -hmm. They did not obey his commandments and they did not understand who they were as faithful people of God. And so they entered into exile. And it's fascinating to me that during Ezra and Nehemiah's ministry, when the people return, uh, they find the book of the law, they find the Torah and they read the law, they're instructed in the law, and then they, 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 they declare that they're going to follow that law. And that historically has been said that that's the beginning of the synagogue tradition. And as Christians, uh, we would say, and we continue that tradition so that the people of God gather to hear the word of God preached and then to share it in communion with one another in remembrance of what Jesus had done and praying together. So thinking about Acts 4, what the apostles gathered together. And so they gathered to hear the preaching of, of, God's, of, of the apostles uh, and to pray together and then to share in common together the, the Lord's Supper and remembrance of him. And so is it necessary for every church gathering to include preaching? I think yes, because we're built on that foundation of Ezra and Nehemiah being reminded who we are as a people, uh, being reminded of what it means to follow God, and then most especially built upon that apost uh, apostolic tradition of gathering together for the preaching and prayer of God's people together. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I guess, um, it's like you said, it's having a healthy balance are providing every aspect of what preaching truly is. Or many times, I, I would, I guess the, the my concern would be many times we fall trap of only showing one side of preaching, which is uh, the prophetic side or, or the the teach or the teaching side only. Like you said, yeah. making sure we 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 draw near, keep near the understanding that there's a spectrum of not only preaching but every aspect. Teaching has a wide spectrum of what your what your goals are. You know, discipleship. All these have wide aspects, and really showing. And that's why what you mentioned earlier, I think, is is important, is to go outside of your realm for study. Uh, going outside of your realm, like reading historic uh, figures, reading people from outside your community, allows you to really drive the understanding that, like, your one culture is, and the way you guys do things isn't always the only right way, or, or the only only right way. Where there's other people doing different things that you could draw and understand. And I think that's in, important in that uh, sense of things. Now, yeah. and, and and I would add this too. Um, one of the, one of the things that I ask my students to do when they're studying a passage to preach is I ask them to consider both the text and their context in, in a really unique way. I ask them to, uh, to say, is this word, is this passage that I'm studying speaking as a prophetic word, a wise word, um, or, a, um, uh, or, or, or a narrative word where it's giving me a sense of who I am? In other words, uh, if I'm thinking about this passage, maybe this is a passage where I need to confront the people and call them to faithfulness, that kind of prophetic proclamation. But maybe this is a passage that's giving instruction for life. It's a wise word. 
uh, maybe I need to provide a reorienting word where where the passage is challenging uh, my worldview and is providing for me a better worldview, a better set of values and narrative story to live by. And then based on my context, where might the people of God need to hear the emphasis? Uh, maybe a passage is doing all three of those things. So maybe it is confronting sin and calling us to faithfulness. Maybe it is providing instruction for all of life. Maybe it is reorienting us to certain values and narratives that we have. But maybe there's something in the context that needs to be emphasized based on where my people are at the moment. And so there are times when the preacher speaks as prophet. There are times where the preacher speaks as sage. And then there are times where the preacher speaks as storyteller to remind us of our core narrative, uh, our core value sets. And that comes out of uh, the attention to those two poles, uh, the pole of the biblical text and the pole of my context. Um, one one thing that uh, I this is more uh, actually personal to me is there's a difference between someone visiting and preaching and someone that's embedded within the local community you're preaching out of. And one of the challenges before I moved and I was uh, part of the the preaching team within my church was you start as you build and become a leader you start learning personal people's personal lives and you start learning like this person needs to hear a message of love. This person needs to get like put into shape and hear a message of like you need to be holy, you need to get yourself in shape. This needs to, per and you start, you know, you start looking at these people at the crowd and you start saying like everybody needs something right now. And my always my thought and my the weight of preaching for me is how does one message hit everyone when they all need something different? And then yeah. I think about did Jesus did Jesus messages hit everyone in the crowd? Or was he willing, or is it something that you understand as a preacher that not all, not every message is going to hit everyone? And if that's the that's case, did, the, did those people waste their time coming to service that day? Because it wasn't for them. It might be for them next week. Uh, you know, they, they may not be going through it right now, but they might be going through it tomorrow. Uh, so you don't think that... So sorry, sorry to interrupt, Kerwin. One of the um, I'm probably saying it in, in messed up in Spanish, but uh, eh, la palabra no, no retorna vacía. Like mm -hmm. though mm -hmm. every word you say, it, it, it's always gonna land. So if that's the case, shouldn't a message always impact everyone? If the word is never returned empty, that, that's a good question. Uh, I think the the foundation of preaching is that we're preaching truth, and so it will be true to everyone. And so sometimes it might affirm someone in their actions. So in other words, that, that person doesn't need to be told, hey, repent, you're going the wrong direction. Or that person doesn't need to be told, hey, brother, sister in, in the Lord, stand up, be encouraged, uh, uh, be, be, be refreshed in this truth. There are other people that we're saying essentially, brother, sister, keep on going. You're going in the right way. Uh, amen. Say amen to this because you already know this as, as gospel truth and you've been living this out. And so in that sense, the word never returns void because it's either affirming someone, challenging someone, encouraging someone. But there's a sense in which there might be a specific word for someone uh, where it's even more meaningful because of what they're experiencing. And to your point earlier, uh, Sometimes we might be overwhelmed by the needs of our congregations, and we have to remember that we have a lifetime of preaching, hopefully, if the Lord uh, so chooses, 
where we are able to minister to people, not just one Sunday, one message, but Lord willing, through various messages as we're forming and discipling people according to the gospel. Uh, and so you don't have to give them everything. <laughs> Some preachers try to preach the whole Bible <laughs> in one sermon, all truth. Uh, and, and I think it's important to remember that, Lord willing, there are other preachers coming behind you or there are other sermons that you are able to provide for the people of God so that they might be encouraged. It's okay to be specific. Um, uh, yeah. Anthony, you had something the, you want the to say? The issue with this specific topic is that it can open branches to a lot of different things so i'll try to stay so first of all that the verse they used it doesn't not only is it not only speaking about a a a literal word but it goes into other deeper things but just because you know it says a word will not return back void but that doesn't mean it's coming back immediately. It can simmer. It can simmer in that person's heart for three weeks, like Kerwin was saying, and then in three weeks' time, then it, they get a flashback, and then so ju- just like we're compared to the sower, right? We throw the seed, and then through time it grows. So that 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 word that was given last Sunday doesn't, you know, it 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 may need time to grow, be watered, given sun to grow. Into and that's why I've always had an issue where people say, "Oh, I, 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 I won X amount of souls for God." It's like, yeah, but you don't know you don't know the trajectory. How many people preached to that person before you, and you were just that one thousand one person, and then you know it's all a work in progress. It's not like I preached to everybody and they were converted immediately. So it's not about turning back immediately, but that gradual process. And also, you know, the Bible says that. God adds to the church such as he as he will so it's God may may have that may keep that guy's that specific person's heart hard for the moment because he's trying to get them through a process and as he softens it they need that consistent it may not be it may not be this Sunday God softens their heart but next Sunday we still need that preached word so that when that moment comes that God softens their heart that Sunday or whatever day maybe that word comes and also yeah and you got to think no i was just going to add to that you, you got to think about you know prophets like jeremiah who, who are preaching to a people who don't respond yeah. positively but their lack of response serves to condemn mm-hmm. them uh, and obviously we, we hope that that wouldn't be the case uh that our preaching would result in everyone accepting the word but we know that that's not true that that doesn't happen even jesus not uh, not everyone responded to jesus's words but to your point earlier, uh, and I interrupted you, uh, but but it just reminded me so much of, I had a friend who was doing ministry uh, in a closed country. And so uh, she was ministering as a teacher and it was for the purpose of sharing the gospel with people. And she said to me something that was really profound. She said, I've learned here uh, the notion of, I am joining the work of people who have come before mm-hmm. me. And so the Lord in his grace has allowed me to see people coming to faith. But I know that that was only possible because all of the teachers who left here not seeing the fruit. And I've been blessed to see the fruit. But that tells me that I can keep being faithful with those people who seem hard, who aren't responding, who seem stuck in their unbelief. Because I pray maybe one day 
another teacher will come or two teachers will come after me and see them coming to faith. But I just have to trust the Lord. So if you're discouraged and you're saying nobody's responding, uh, it may not be because of ineffectiveness. It may be that you're just sowing the seed that someone else will be able to water and someone else will be able to see fully, fully grown. And, and to finish my point, um, the the normal way that most churches run their services is, you know, praise and worship and then the word at the end. That's it's not a coincidence that it came out that way. It's it's just a reflection of the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament is a shadow of the new. So in the tabernacle, the priest had to do all these rituals that, that signified worship and sacrifice and all that stuff. And then at the end was when the 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 Shekinah would come down and burn the altar, all that. So just like just like that, the priest had to do all these things before God will come down and, and be manifest. It's the same thing in our services. We praise, we worship, we create the ambiance, which is what you know the incense and all that represents. We create the ambiance. Our praise and worship goes up to God, and then God comes down through the preacher and speaks. And that's why I've always had an issue with, you know, I grew up Pentecostal. This was always the same thing. They would always say, now comes the best part of the service. And and that's not really correct because we were created to worship. The only reason preaching is a thing now is because of sin after the fall of man. But before that, we were created to worship. So our primary job is to worship God. Preaching is a secondary consequence of that atmosphere that we've created now because we've done our part now now god will do his and speak to us so that's also another thing to take into consideration sometimes the the word might not hit me because i came in with a with a down spirit or i'm not really i just came and i'm just sitting there so the word might not touch me because i'm just you know i'm not in it i haven't opened myself up i haven't worshiped i haven't created the atmosphere in my in me to do that yeah, one of my professors said something to me that I won't give the exact details because some people might be offended. But he said he said something to me that was interesting. He, he was critiquing his own faith tradition. I'll say it, he's, he's a white Baptist. Uh, but he said, he said to us uh, one time, he said, you know, the problem with my tradition is uh, we come to the sermon knowing that we're supposed to receive a sermon. And so it's like the person who has to take their daily vitamin. They don't really want to take it. They know it's good for them. So they're just going to sit down and just receive it. And sometimes they enjoy the process. Other times it's just something they're supposed to do. And then he says, uh, other traditions that I've been invited into, uh, and, and I got to be careful not to, you know, not to take his words and essentialize it, that this is true of all Latino churches or all black churches. But he said, in other traditions, people come to the service expecting to experience God and hear a word from God. And when that happens, the experience of the sermon takes on a very different uh, different shape. And so it becomes an event that we are waiting on the Lord to minister to us. And I found in my own life, uh, especially as a teacher of preaching, there are a lot of times when I come with a critical spirit uh, and I'm judging the mm -hmm. sermon, I'm critiquing the sermon as if the preacher is a student of mine. And I feel as though the Holy Spirit is saying, might I have something to say to you? And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, yeah. no, <laughs> I, I, I got to I gotta come with a different kind of mm -hmm. expectation rather than yeah. let me be entertained yeah. or let me be impressed. It's 
might I be moved by the Spirit? And some of us have to change the way we come mm-hmm. to service uh, in that preparation to receive something from the, from, from the Lord. And that's why I think some preachers talk about this as uh, in the same kind of sacramental aspect of we are partaking in Christ uh, in, in that kind of the Lord's Supper aspect where it's uh, Carl Barth talks about this. It's almost as if the preached word is a manifestation of the word Christ. And so we receive Christ in the same way that we'd be taking the Lord's Supper, there might be something to that. Well, let me piggyback off of that. We have to remember that, and this is a debate I've had with Abel before, Jesus did not only come to save us. He came to save us, yes, but also give us an example. There's a duality. And we see that in the Old Testament when when the, the, the Jews were in, in, in Egypt, Moses is trying to get them out all the plagues, all that. He says, the angel, the, the death angel is going to come and kill everybody. So you got to get the blood, put it on your doorpost. Blood is the sacrifice, that's salvation. But it doesn't, it wasn't the blood alone that saved them. He said, put the blood on the door, on the, on your doorstep or on, on the top, but you have to eat all of the lamb. It specifically says, put the blood and eat all the lamb. Don't leave anything. And that's the, that's the same duality. The blood, just in the, in the Holy Sacrament. The blood and the bread is both things. Yeah, it's it's interesting to, to kind of see. There's so much more to... And I think this is the risk many people have is a step too soon within ministry. And I'm sure you see that a lot where they're, they're hungry, which is great. And I think that story you mentioned earlier was great. But there's a danger when you don't understand the full scope mm-hmm. of what you're doing. Um, now, one of the points I kind of wanted to bring up before we wrap up, Kerwin, is the tribalism or the um, the following of a preacher. Where mm. do you see? Where do you? So, like, we see this in um, in the book of James where it talks about the issue of the people of J or the people of Peter came and didn't want to eat with the the Gentiles, and it speaks about that and that tribalism of following a leader that's a man where do you like because we all have our preachers that we like we listen to where is that danger of like this is my guy i want to listen to this guy or this is my guy i'm going to go to where he preaches is is that okay or should we be like we're going to listen to everyone i don't want to listen to anyone again like where do you where do you balance of like it's okay to like someone and try to listen to them again because they're good and linguistically your style and also becoming tribalism into like following their like every everyone has their own ideology and falling trap of that. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I, I have my favorite preachers. Uh, I have preachers that I really enjoy listening to that I'm moved by. Uh, and uh, um, and that's in addition to being a part of a local church. Uh, you know, some people just follow preachers and that's their local church. That's a problem. That's another, that's another topic <laughs> yeah. for another day. But yeah, be in your local churches. Uh, but in terms of local, pre- like different preachers we follow, I think it's OK to do that. I do think we have to be careful in falling into the kind of sin that uh, that P- that Paul talks about in First mm-hmm. Corinthians. First uh, Corinthians chapter four, where Paul's laying out a case where he says, you know, some of y'all say we were baptized by Peter. Some of y'all say I follow Apollos. Others of you say you follow Paul. He says this doesn't make any sense. We're all servants of Christ. And the thing I love about this chapter, Paul is funny sometimes. Yeah. And in this chapter, 
he, he's going, I don't know what y'all are talking about. We play for the same team. Like, we're all called by the same God. So here's what we're going to do. We've come together, basically, and we've decided we're going to come to you. We're going to send Timothy. And could you imagine everybody like, wait, what? <laughs> we said Peter, Paul, Apollos, and you're sending Timothy? Who is this Timothy yeah. guy? <laughs> and it's so funny to me because Paul is reminding the church that these are gospel preachers. And it's not really about mm-hmm. them. It's about the gospel that they're proclaiming. It's about the ministry that they're doing, which is a ministry of proclaiming the greatness of God. And Paul even challenges this notion of how great these people are. We're just humans. And ultimately, we are broken vessels carrying this incredible treasure. And it's amazing that God would use mere humans. And the more we recognize that, the 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 less likely we might uh, be disappointed in people when they disappoint us or where they uh, where we realize that they're just humans. Ultimately, they're just humans. We don't follow X Y preacher. We follow Jesus. Uh, and as long as that preacher points us to Jesus, that's the most important thing. I'll share a quick story. One of my favorite stories about a preacher, uh, Gardner C. Taylor. Doctor Gardner C. Taylor is 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 a hero in the Black Church. Um, and he was preaching for a long time in New York City. If you hear a sermon of his, it's incredible. You can YouTube some of his sermons. You could read them in a collection of sermons. Uh, but Dr. Taylor's church, the church where he was ministering, burned down. And they had raised funds and they were rebuilding the church. But there was a plaque in front of the pulpit that Dr. Taylor wanted to make sure made it to the new church. And the plaque was a King James quote from the Gospels where it says the people of God uh, or the people came visiting Jesus and they said, we shall see Jesus. Or in other words, we want to see Jesus. And he does take it out of context, but he had that on the plaque. And he said, I want that in front of the pulpit because I want me and any other preacher who stands behind this pulpit to understand the people didn't come for you. The people didn't come to hear your eloquence or your skill. They came with one need and one need only, and that was to see Jesus. And that's your responsibility, to so exalt Jesus that that's the main thing, not you. And I just love that as a reminder for people to remember that ultimately it's not about an individual preacher. It's about Jesus. And then for the preacher to be reminded, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And they should be able to see Jesus in you. Not you. When they see you, they shouldn't see you. They should see Jesus in you. That's exactly right. Last question is when it comes to preaching itself. So we see multiple linguistic styles uh, when it comes to body language, everything. We see see A to Z you could talk about. If, If you truly, let's say we take away and have the perfect world, perfect church, do you still believe there will be different styles or linguistic preachings or is that something because of our fall and we have all these different cultures imperfections of division and you know there's over time because of sin we divided ourselves and these people are here these people are there we've created different cultures over time that's it a consequence of that or is it truly uh, a beauty of christ to have these different styles because my my only thought is that like why is one person like dropping people on the floor and the other one's just preaching calmly and, and never has done that and has never laid a hand on someone's life. Is is it because we're impartial to the, the, the trueness of God or is that something that it's a beauty? 
Is it a curse or a beauty? Yeah. I think it's a beauty because it reminds us that ultimately we are different servants carrying the same gospel. In other words, um, I have been amazed studying the history of preaching and seeing how God has used different people, different cultures, different people groups, different styles and methods to proclaim his gospel and grow his church. Um, it's really amazing. Uh, you know, reading a sermon like Charles Spurgeon, for example, uh, preaching in England, he lived at a very specific time. And so his communication style was very unique to his particular time and his uh, faith tradition as a Baptist. But then you listen to a sermon today in a, in, a, in a different context, say in Latin America or in a Pentecostal church, it's a different method and a different style. And yet God still uses that gospel preaching in ways to grow his church, to nurture his people, and to develop his church, because ultimately it's about him and the gospel message. And so I think it's a great reminder that our responsibility is to live a life that's embodying the gospel, both in transformation, in other words, I've been transformed, and letting my lived experience bear witness to that transformation. In other words, I can't preach with Abel's voice. I can't preach with Anthony's voice. We might have some similarities in style and personality, but ultimately, this is my preaching of God's word in a way that is true to what God has done through me and in me. And so I want to use best practices, of course, but ultimately, uh, God has called each of us individually to speak from our own particular experiences in a way that highlights him and communicates clearly what his gospel message is. And so I think in today's context, uh, there are particular methods that are most helpful to to make clear what the gospel is. Uh, I, for one, am an expository preacher. That means that I want to preach uh, sections of the scriptures and I want to let the genre and structure of the passage shape the structure and mood of my sermon. Um, I think in today's context, where people are, especially living in the West, that's the most effective way of doing that with a central, clear idea. But I also know that there are other methods. So for example, other people have an expository verse-by-verse -verse method where they're going one phrase at a time. Uh, and that's been effective for in some contexts, and I think that that can work and the Lord can use that, but it's not what I think is the best methodology. And so uh, there are other people, you know, who are topical preachers or who, who, who do other things like that. And in some cases that can be effective. Again, I don't think it's the best methodology for a number of reasons, but I also don't want to have, I want to have humility to understand that as long as we're preaching uh, the gospel and our words are being shaped by what God says in his written word, uh, that the Lord might use that for effectiveness and for good to grow his church. Yeah, I, I agree. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the, the gospel is meant to reach everyone. So, you know, we go back to the gospels. Matthew wrote his with a specific audience in mind, Mark, his, Luke. So, you know, the styles and I, yeah, it can be, it can be a curse in some, in some instances, if you follow the person that created that, that line and 
because we've seen it before, right? Uh, what's this guy's name? Um, the guy that that founded the Jehovah's Witness movement. They followed him instead of following the the God he was supposedly about, and it you, you, we see what it turned into. But if we if we remember that it's about Christ, it's not about the person who started the movement. Then we can see that it's a beauty and it, it's able to reach people that the gospel can reach people that it couldn't with this style as opposed to this style or vice versa. So. Last question, Kerwin. Um, then I'm gonna let you go help help the wifey with the little <laughs> ones. Um, <laughs> at this is, I mean, I have this question on multiple levels, like. Are we overpopulated with churches and divided resources? Are we overpopulated mm. in many ways? At what point do we have enough preachers? At what point do we have enough spokespeople? And then we just yeah. need to empower our spokespeople better to have a better platform and not just have more of them. Like, yeah. do you think we're really having that many people called? Is it, is it, I mean, or is it we're just oversaturating? What do you think about that? I'll let you kind of give your thoughts on that. I think Jesus's words are still relevant. The harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Uh, I think that, I mean, the world hasn't gotten smaller. Uh, we've becoming even more populated. And uh, especially as we think about it in the West, um, we are um, becoming less churched, uh, not more churched. And so um, I think there needs to be more preachers who are um, ministering to, pastoring, shepherding, uh, fewer people. The, 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 sometimes the model that we have is like one pastor who's so influential that they preach to thousands and they're becoming converted. But as we talked about earlier, the faithful preacher's life for most of us will be uh, weekly, consistently preaching the gospel to a group of 100 people, 150 people. 80 people, 200, 250, 300, maybe. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, ministers are ministering in small contexts. And so we need to do everything we can uh, to enable, empower, uh, develop young preachers, the next generation of preachers to be gospel ministers who will live a life of character, of godly character, uh, and, and dedicate it to the, the ministry of the, of the gospel clearly in every context. So I think we need more. We need more preachers. And there are unfortunately some places where people think they're called to preach because they want some kind of benefit. I don't know what benefits they want. Most preachers don't make a lot of money, trust me. Uh, <laughs> the life isn't that glamorous. It's not that glamorous, but, but some yeah. people think it is. Uh, some people like the attention, right? Like the, the ability to, to have a platform, to have people listen to what I say. Uh, and and, and I, I say, Lord, have mercy on that person because the Lord will deal with them. Uh, and I don't want to be in the way when the Lord deals with them because he will. Uh, but the Lord, uh, the Lord is calling preachers all over the world, um, raising up hopefully a new generation to do this work because the work needs to be done, especially in the West where we're having fewer and fewer people understand the, 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 the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and let me um, add to that. What's interesting about how you just finished about the West is that not only is the West losing its, its and, and needs more preachers, but 
as we see in, in other countries, it's it's even worse, you know. They're, they're not allowed to preach. They're closed it off to Christianity. So just as much as we need here, we need more across the globe. And like you said, the world has gotten bigger. As, you know, and this is something that shocked me uh, a few months ago, this uh, missionary came to our church and brought this point up, and it got me thinking. It's like we've been preaching and going on mission trips since God knows when. And you would think there's less and less people that need to be preached to. And no, as population has grown, that number keeps growing bigger. So our our mission, if anything, has gotten even greater. We need more missionaries. We, we need more people reaching. So, um, This is a quick take for you, uh, Kerwin, and to let you go. And I just want to say thank you again. Um, is... This has nothing to do with preaching, but I was thinking, I was praying yesterday and I was like, I would love to hear both of your answers. When it comes to when you pray, who do you pray to? Do you pray to Jesus? Do you pray to the Father? Do you pray to the Holy Spirit? So when I was praying yesterday, because I pray writing down, and I don't know if that's wrong or right, but I pray writing down. Like writing a journal, that's how I pray. Yeah. But I pray saying, God, thank you for sending your son. Am I wrong to pray to the Father? saying thank you or should i pray to jesus so what do you what do you, what do you, i'll go with you anthony who do you pray to or do you don't really specify when you pray well i mean we're kind of dividing i mean it's god is god it's yeah. it's all the so, same yes but when you when verbatim linguistically who um, do you pray to well we we ask we ask the father through, remember, Jesus died for us, so his blood covers us. So, technically, when we're going to the throne, we're going with the Lamb's blood on us. So, Jesus is covering us. So, technically, it's Jesus asking of the Father, regardless of what we say. So, Yeah, I get it. But, like, when you speak, do you say, Jesus, help me through this situation. Give me strength. Or you say, Father. Or do you say, Holy Spirit, give me strength. Like, who do you declare... And that in obviously we're preaching the to the father, same God. Father God. You say the Father. Uh, Kerwin, who do you who do you uh, like pray to? Yeah. I so mean, again, for, I want to specify to our listeners, it's all the right, same. But right. who do you we're like? Praying to a pray triune to. God. Yes. Yeah, and praying to a triune God. Uh, my experience has been a lot of times I I start my prayers Father uh, and and you know petitioning or praising. And then there are other times where I might uh, uh, direct my prayers to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. <laughs> Sometimes in the same prayer, I might say, Father, help me. Lord, thank you. Spirit, guide me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so praying to the triune God in that way. I've been trying to be more conscientious about that, of, of having my prayers reflect my theology of the Trinity. Because I think... Um, uh, uh, the what Trinity is a that? complex concept. Uh, I, I want to pray uh, in a way that reflects Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, and I think in the New Testament that happens, you know, Paul's prayers uh, sometimes are referring just to the Father, sometimes to the Father and the Son. Sometimes he mentions the Spirit. And so I kind of want to try to do that a little bit more intentionally. Because okay. I think uh, um, my default is just to pray to the Father. Uh, yeah. And refer to the Son and the Spirit, which I don't think is wrong. Uh, yeah. But I've been trying to intentionally remember that we serve a triune God. Yeah, it was it was interesting because 
just it was a random thought because I was like, in reality, we're in a time of the Holy Spirit. Like Old Testament had the Father, like that was like the prime, and then Jesus was the New Testament, and now we were brought the Spirit in presence directly with us. So I was like, man, should I be praying more to the Spirit because that's the one that really is moving right now? Like that was it was just a random thought. I'm like, I wonder what's like what what do other people do? But you yeah, got to be so careful was, too, right? Because you, you don't you don't want to fall into a kind of uh, a heresy there. Where yeah. it's like the father bowed out, <laughs> Jesus bowed out, because yeah. in in the epistles, you know, it's it's the the beauty is the triune God working together, mm-hmm. all three persons of the Trinity working together for our yeah. salvation, for our redemption, and all that. So yeah, it's complex, right? It's it's a lot. It's a lot. I mean, it's it's why the one question the the the, the, the disciples ask is, "Teach me how to pray." That was that was. There was a reason why they asked that. Well, Curran, thank you so much for joining. We appreciate it. Uh, we're ex- I want to bring you back. There's so much more questions I want to ask you. What's a false prophet? What's a false preacher? Like, there's so much <laughs> more to speak about. But I'm excited. Um, thank you again for being on, and we'll, we'll definitely have you on again. For sure, man. This was a lot of fun. Thank y'all. Uh, Anthony, it was great I to quite. meet you. Abel, it's always a pleasure. Uh, y'all are good dudes, and uh, really appreciate being on here. We'll help to see you again. Thank God you. bless you, brother.